Hello and welcome to episode 59 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture and politics. I'm Peter Lim. And I'm Peter Alegi. And our interview for this month was recorded by Peter Alegi at the 10th Annual Northeastern Workshop on Southern Africa at Burlington, Vermont. Peter will introduce our guest. Jacob Thamini is a PhD candidate in the History Department at Yale University and an award-winning author. In 2009, he was awarded a Ruth First Fellowship in Journalism at Witts University in Johannesburg, and that same year published his book, Native Nostalgia, for which he won the University of Johannesburg's Creative Writers Debut Prize in 2010. He has a journalism career spanning 18 years. He has held various positions as political editor for Business Day in 2005, a junior correspondent in the London Bureau of the Sunday Times in the 90s, and Jacob also holds a, an MA in social and political thought from the University of Sussex and two master's degrees from Yale, one of them in African studies, which he undertook as a Fulbright scholar uh, several years ago. He is currently completing his doctoral dissertation on the social and political history of the Kruger Park, the flagship of South Africa's 20 national parks. I'm here with Jacob Chamini. Uh, thank you for joining me on uh, this episode of Africa Past and Present. Welcome. Thank you, Peter. We are in Burlington, Vermont, at the 10th NUSA conference, and it's a great opportunity to talk about uh, history and memory with one of the finest young historians in South Africa today and the author of a best-selling book entitled Native Nostalgia, uh, also working on a Ph.D. dissertation on the history of Kruger National Park and uh, on several other projects that hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about uh, during this conversation. So Native Nostalgia, wonderful book that was covered extensively in the South African press, widely read. This is unusual for a book that has to do with history. Um, now, why did you pick the concept of nostalgia, and what were you trying to get at um, in, in this particular book? Uh, well, thank you for the compliments. I, I appreciate that. Uh, I chose the concept of nostalgia uh, because of its many possibilities. Uh, I was interested in looking at the past and, 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 and seeing what the past might tell us about the present. Uh, and, and, and you know, But beyond that, I was interested in looking at the past uh, to find in the past uh, possible explanations for why apartheid collapsed for why South Africa is today a democracy. Uh, and, and nostalgia came in very handy, uh, not just because it's you know, a concept that, that, that you know, is full of meaning, but, but also because of the work that's been done uh, in other countries by a range of scholars. I'm thinking of uh, Svlatana Boim, uh, you know, who's done work uh, on the former Soviet, Soviet bloc. Uh, in fact, I draw a lot of my appreciation of the term nostalgia from, from her work. And she draws uh, what I think is a very productive and, and, and fruitful dis, uh, distinction uh, between what she calls uh, you know, uh, restorative nostalgia, uh, which is interested uh, essentially in restoring the past, uh, in making things look or you know, be as they were before, uh, and, and, and uh, reflective nostalgia on the other hand, which is driven uh, by, by irony. So you're looking at the past, but, but you, you're doing so with a, a very deep sense of irony. 
and finding in the past, uh, you know, things that, on the face of it, you know, appear contradictory and, and silly, but 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 when looked at uh, in, in finer detail, you know, uh, appear to help explain, uh, you know, why you where you are in the present, uh, and and so that that's why I chose nostalgia. And for those of you who are who are not familiar with uh, the book, there's a great introduction in which you lay all of this of this out, and you're talking about this strange thing that you come across in South Africa often, which is older people uh, looking back at the bad old days and having quite uh, positive memories of certain moments, right? And as an outsider, I was always amazed at how somebody could look at, the, at such a horrible past and have relatively good feelings about it. And this goes beyond sort of rosy recollections of one's vigorous, you know, popular youth or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, so why did you choose that topic, to, to, to think about the ways in which people remember the battle days in, in, in not so negative terms. Well, I think one way in nostalgic av- terms. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean one way of answering that question I think is to is to to, to, to look at this book or to think of it as a, as, a, as a, a polemical intervention in debates in South Africa about the past and its meanings. Uh, and what I was trying to do uh, with my intervention uh, in, in this debate was to Recuperate some of these memories of the past that that are fond, uh, that are positive, uh, but to, to recuperate them without, uh, at the same time, uh, reinforcing you know this is, this is a stereotype that, that to think positively about a life lived under apartheid is to valorize apartheid itself or to give apartheid a, a positive meaning which which it, it didn't have, uh, and and I can never make this point. Uh, uh, strongly enough that, that, that apartheid was a morally and intellectually bankrupt system that had no virtue, none whatsoever. Uh, however, to say that is not to say that, uh, you know, apartheid was a simple system, uh, you know, where black was on one side and white was on the other with, with nothing in between, uh, because that's not how life is and that's not how, you know, the world operates. Uh, you had all kinds of complexities that I think need to be brought out. And so at first, my initial reaction when I, when I, when I heard people say, oh, but things were better, uh, you know, in, in the olden days, or, you know, things were better under apartheid, was to dismiss uh, such sentiments. Uh, but the more I thought about it, you know, the more I realized that there's something, you know, there's something there, there's something there that needs uh, engaging with seriously. And that's something in the, is, 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 you know, what I describe in the book as, 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 you know, lives of integrity, lives of meaning. You know, as people are not remembering uh, loss and lack. And of course, that doesn't go away. There, there is trauma. There's past injustice that that you know, still needs to, to to be to be engaged with and dealt with, uh, in both moral, political, you know, and economic terms. But but there's also you know there's this you know business of lives of integrity uh, that that people led, and that's what people are remembering. That's why people are you know, thinking back to you know uh, some sort of order. Uh, you know some some. some Sense of respect, uh, you know, so some some sense that uh, you know the older generation is teaching the younger generation something, and, and that there's value, that that that, that there's, there's value, uh, you know, invested in life, and, and that apartheid never took this value away or doesn't take away, uh, and, and, and so as I understand these sentiments about you know life having been better under apartheid, I have come to accept that oftentimes it's what people are talking about. 
and of course, this is not to say that, that, that you know, you know, reflective nostalgia is the only thing there is out there. There's also restorative nostalgia. You, know, you do have right wingers, you do have conservatives, you know, who wish apartheid had never ended. Uh, and, and I think what often happens is when critics read you know, native nostalgia or hear about it, they assume uh, that that what I'm trying to do is to endorse the conservative right wing uh, position, which says, uh, you know, bring back apartheid, and, and that's not at all what I'm doing. It's a, it's a very fine line, and you walk it beautifully, particularly in the way that you tell your autobiography, in a sense. It's a memoir, really, of you growing up in Katlehong in the East Rand, and um, the chapters that you have in the book work really well. For example, the issue of Afrikaans, uh-huh. which, of course, for a long, long time, right, was identified exclusively almost as the language, first of African nationalism, but also the language of the oppressor, of apartheid. Um, How do you upset that simplistic view of the language of Afrikaans? Well, the first thing to do uh, there is to challenge the assumption that the relationship between black South Africans and Afrikaans, the language, you know, begins and ends with 76 or begins and ends in 1955-54 with Bantu education. Because that's not at all true. Uh, it, as, as, as anyone who knows anything about, about the history of Afrikaans uh, will know that you know, Afrikaans is essentially a hybrid language that comes out of the, uh, let's call it the colonial encounter, right, between you know, Europe and Africa, uh, in Southern Africa. Uh, you know, it, it, it's informed by all kinds of streams and strands uh, so that's the history of, 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 of the language. But the dominant narrative about the history of Afrikaans has been the narrative that says it's not only the language of uh, African nationalism, uh, which is exclusive, racialized, and racist, uh, but also the language of the oppressor. You know, and, and that therefore the only black person who speaks it or can speak it must be, by definition, brainwashed or you know, or, or, or cuckoo. Yeah. And so what I, t- what I try and do in, 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 in the book is to show that the history uh, of that relationship between black South Africans and Afrikaans is very much a history of urban South Africa. It's very much a history of the urbanization of South Africa. But it's also a history that, that, that is deeper uh, than the conventional accounts uh, of that relationship uh, would have it. And language plays a big part in this book. Uh, the, the urban vernacular, of course, in, in Gauteng, in, in the uh, area between Johannesburg and, and Pretoria, this megalopolis that has now developed, there's, there's such an incredible potpourri of languages. And, and the way people have uh, combined languages is, is phenomenal, uh, even on the mines with Fanagalo and so on, right? Uh, and another way you use language in a really interesting way in the book is through the, the Zulu radio drama. Uh, and, and for listeners who don't know, the South African Broadcasting Corporation developed these uh, ethnic channels uh, starting in the 60s with, with Radio Bantu in various uh, African languages. And uh, one of the most popular was, of course, Radio Zulu, uh, which exists with a different name now, Ukwazi uh, FM, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the Zulu radio dramas were really uh, interesting in the way they use language in, 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 in coded ways uh, that in many many cases, right, eluded censors, or, or at least uh, unintentionally produced uh, some, some interesting outcomes. Can, can you tell us a little more about these radio dramas and, and how you came upon the idea of using this as a, as a source to read into this, this history? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, the fair thing to say about that is, is that radio, uh, and of course, let's not forget that you know, South Africa did not have television until 1976, uh, and that many black South African families, especially working class South African families, didn't have you know, television sets in their, you know, in their homes until you know, the mid 80s, uh, late 80s, and in, 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 in many cases. So that's the first thing. Uh, then the second thing, to, you know, the second point to to, to make is that uh, uh, for many families that had radio sets, uh, radio sets were central to familial living, or the central to communal living. You know, it's what families would gather around. Uh, it's what families, you know, would would come together to 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 enjoy. And and radio dramas were were, were an important part of this. And in my case, uh, you know, we had a, a radio set, a Blaupunkt, I remember, uh, German-made, I think. Uh, and, and it's what we would gather around every evening, uh, Monday to Friday, uh, to listen to these radio dramas. You didn't have them on weekends. You had different, different, different programs. Uh, and so it wasn't just that, uh, that that we would do. Uh, but, you know, we also used radio a lot uh, to gather news, uh, you know, to learn what was happening in other parts of the country, other parts of the world. And what would happen there is that, so you would get accounts of, uh, just to give an example of, of skirmishes, uh, you know, between you know, freedom fighters and the security police. Uh, so, so that in itself was, was educational because it gave you a sense that there was something going on out there. Right? So there was that. But you also had within Radio Zulu itself uh, uh, announcers, presenters who... And I don't know how intentional this was or how political this was, but you had announcers who would subvert, just through their use of language, uh, the messages that they were uh, communicating. So uh, a report, just to give another example, a, a report say, on a skirmish uh, you know, between the security police and freedom fighters would, you know, would, would be couched in, 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 in words that made it very clear that the announcer didn't believe a word of what uh, you know of, of, of what uh, he was announcing. Uh, you know, so there was one famous uh, uh, news reader uh, you know, whose name I forget who would preface uh, you know each item or his announcement of each item by saying, "Well, uh, you know, oh, there we go again. Yeah, that'll be the opening. Uh, oh, Guang Pinda Gelok. You know, so there we go again." And then you're going to say, oh, uh, you know, they say I must say this, you know, batingiti, or gutiwa, it is said. Uh, and, and that distancing, you know, that they say I must say this, or it is said, you know, called into question the, the, the veracity of the information that was being given out. And, and so that, again, I don't know if this was intentional, but, but that, that had a subversive uh, effect uh, on my young mind, this is, you know, so, so certainly, because it, it, it made me question a lot of what I was getting. Uh, it, why this is important is because it, it subverts, uh, I think, a lot of the propaganda uh, that the you know, liberation movement itself churned out about Radio Zulu and how Radio Zulu worked, uh, because to hear the movement tell it, uh, the radio, radio Zulu and, and all these other ethnic uh, radio stations that you've talked about were nothing but propaganda uh, tools, uh, but that's not how it worked uh, in, in, in practice, and that's what I try and bring out. And of course, uh, the soap operas today are still very 
popular on television, oh, uh, locally produced uh, soapies of, of various kinds. Um, in other words, these radio dramas are an antecedent, and the radio dramas themselves had antecedents because, of course, oral tradition and storytelling oh, uh, are absolutely central uh, to African history. No? And so I imagine when the family is sitting around the, the radio set, there's also an intergenerational conversation that's going on. No? Oh, oh, totally. I, I I mean, I like to tell stories, and, and, and I think that's where it comes from. It, it comes from, you know, listening to these radio dramas, but doing that in my company of, of, of my mom, my aunts, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, cousins. Uh, one of the things we'd have to do as kids uh, is that uh, my mother was a, a community activist of sorts, a social activist, uh, you know, involved in women's groups and church affairs and, and, and all of that stuff. And there would be nights where she would miss the radio drama, and so what would have to happen is that we would have to listen attentively to, you know, the that particular episode's, uh, you know, developments, so that when my mom came home, we'd then have to say, to her, well, this is what happened, and that's what happened. And then in some instances, we'd have to reenact you know, some other some other drama. And then, and bear in mind that like, this was, I mean, these were radio dramas, right? So so we would would only have heard these dramas, not seen them. Yeah, uh, but what that does for the imagination. So something that you've only heard and are now reenacting and acting out. Uh, that, I think, just looking back, was just amazing, uh, you know, as, as, as a training tool for, for, you know, helping expand the imagination and just helping you think beyond your own uh, particular space and time. I think some of that culture, unfortunately, with the hegemony of television uh, has has withered away. Uh, television has little to leave uh, to the imagination, uh, uh, unlike radio. Uh, on, on this issue of language, too, the, the way the book is actually written is very engaging. I think it's one of the, the reasons for its success, but also for, for reaching the broad audience that it has reached. Um, did your past as a journalist influence uh, your writing style and do you think this had a role in, in allowing you to reach a much broader audience than academics usually do? Uh, I, I think so too. I, mean, I, I must say, Peter, that, that for me the, the biggest surprise has, has been the, the, the generally positive react, uh, response uh, that, that the book has generated in the academy uh, in South Africa and, and you know here and in you know, parts of Europe, that has been uh, a pleasant surprise because I didn't write the book for, for, for the academy, I didn't write it for academics. Uh, and I keep thinking that if, if that had been the intention, I probably would have written a mm. different book. You know, uh, probably a book with more rigor, more focus. But I wrote what I like to think of as a book without discipline uh, you know, because it was a polemical uh, intervention and, and, and a debate in South Africa about the past and, and how the past is remembered and used. Uh, yeah, and, and, and so the intention uh, of, of you know, making this polemical intervention uh, determined, uh, to a large extent, the kind of book that this became. Uh, yeah, uh, because it was a polemical intervention, it. it in a, in a public debate, uh, it, it was written in a, in a style that, that, that you know was meant to make it appeal to people beyond the academy, uh, you know, to people you know beyond the media even, uh, and, uh, and I think that's worked to a point, yeah. And I think also that it has a pink cover. 
<laughs> work to your advantage. <laughs> it, it, it did. I, I, you know, I mean, one of the biggest boosters for the for the book is uh, Jenny Chris Williams. You know who you know who. Wonderful radio host. A wonderful radio host. And then, I mean, I guess one, one apt description of her is that, you know, she is chairperson of the South African Book Club, you know, uh, you know because of what she does to promote books. And, you know, she tells the story that, that she picked up the book on, you know, on her way to, to, to a holiday, uh, you know, in the Southern Cape, I think. Uh, and you know, saw the pin cover, picked it up, thinking that it, you know, it was uh, chick lit. Uh, and then gets to the beach and you know opens the book and realizes that actually this <laughs> you couldn't get any farther uh, away from Chiclet uh, you know than, than, than this book. Uh, so the so the pen cover has has, has, has has done wonders. But I mean there are people who don't who don't you know like it uh, for whatever reason. Uh, but yeah, I, I I mean I don't expect that you know everyone would like like it. So. Well, I think it's a bold choice, and, and <laughs> yeah. um, I think it worked well. Yeah, now, cool. now your your other work that we mentioned at the beginning is the academic work. You're yeah. completing a doctoral dissertation at Yale University uh, that is a social history of Kruger National Park yeah. and the multiple relations that people and communities have with this absolutely spectacular natural resource uh, of South Africa. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yeah. Well, I, I've been working on, on, on the social history of the Kruger National Park for the past six, uh, six, seven years. And what I'm trying to do uh, with my dissertation is to tell the African history uh, of the Kruger Park, uh, because we have a lot of accounts uh, of the park, well, popular and academic. Uh, most of these tend to be very popular, uh, by which I mean non-academic. Uh, but they also tend to be... Uh, swashbuckling accounts by former rangers or retired rangers or famous tourists just passing through. Uh, and with these accounts, as useful as they are, as a, as a, as a historical uh, resource and, and, and source, uh, what, what they often do is, is ignore the park's African history, which is quite substantial. Uh, we have, in fact, more than 100 uh, archaeological sites in what's called the Kruger National Park itself. Uh, in addition to that, we also have historical connections between communities that live on either side of the you know, uh, South Africa-Mozambique border. Uh, and these are relatives, these are friends, and, and, and these connections go back generations. I mean, you go into the archive and, and, and you, you, know, you see as early as 1902, uh, you know, the park warden complaining that, that, that there's too much movement back and forth. Uh, by Africans, you know, visiting friends, visiting relatives, yeah. And these histories uh, have either been criminalized or ignored uh, in, 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 you know, in official popular accounts uh, of the Kruger Park. And what I try and do uh, in, in, in my dissertation is to build on the pioneering work, uh, you know, done by, by people like, uh, you know, Jane Carruthers, uh, you know, who's the authority on the Kruger Park, uh, you know, the excellent work of someone like David Bunn, uh, Lynn Maskell, the archaeologist. Uh, what I try and do is to build on their work uh, to develop uh, a, a, a different uh, appreciation of, of the history of the park, one that is as uh, knowledgeable about, about uh, you know, the park's uh, you know, flora and fauna as it is about the human beings who have made uh, the park possible, because the, the park is a construct. Uh, the, the, there's nothing natural about the Kruger Park. 
uh, as we know it. It was constructed, and, and you know, politics went into, the, into its construction, economics went into its construction, and, and those are just some of the stories I'm trying to to, to, to bring out. Uh, and the pivotal chapter for me and in my project is, is a chapter on, on African tourism, and the the idea there is to look at the development of an aesthetic relationship uh, between Africans and the landscape, or I should say African elites, uh, or African petty bourgeois uh, bourgeois, uh, folks in in the park, an aesthetic relationship that was all about the aesthetic, uh, I'm repeating myself here, but that's all about a particular appreciation of nature and and, and landscape. So not about shooting game to eat it, not about... Uh, harvesting roots and medicinal plants, but about just going through the park as a tourist, uh, you know, taking in the sights without having to kill anything. Uh, that for me is an important uh, aspect of my project, and, and, and it's important because I think uh, it complicates our understanding uh, of the relationship between Africans uh, and the land, Africans and landscapes uh, in colonial times. And that's the paper that you presented at the NUSA conference. Uh, there's fascinating material in there, and um, I'm looking forward to reading the, the, the dissertation and the book that surely will come out of there. But uh, you're right. I mean, we, we really don't know uh, much at all about uh, the African. And by African here we mean, you know, black South Africans who are, who are going to the park and um, taking advantage of its, of its beauty and, uh-huh. and its structure that usually we associate with white yeah. domestic and foreign tourism, right, the, the sort of uh, a safari-type uh, tourism. So um, b- very yeah, interesting. But also, you, you uh, trained for a while as a, as, a, as a park ranger, right? So, I mean, obviously, the staff uh, is, is local. Um, are there stories there that, uh, that are going to come out in your, in your dissertation um, that enrich this history of Kruger Park viewed from an African perspective? There, there, there are, although I'm not sure if they will come out in the dissertation itself. I mean, you know, one of my, <laughs> one of my favorite anecdotes uh, comes from my first year of doing field work in the Kruger Park, and this was in 2006. So I'm walking around with one of the rangers, uh, a man named Abram. And, you know, I'm, I'm excited, gung ho, I'm just starting out, you know, my field work. And, uh, you know, Abram had been a ranger, I think, for about five years by this time, a young guy, uh, you know, came from, you know, uh, around the park. Uh, and, I mean, the area, one of the villages uh, not far from the park. And so, so we're chatting. So I, I ask him you know, a very global question. Uh, so, you know, what do you think of all these animals that, that you're protecting, but also, you know, helping, you know, people like me, uh, you know, enjoy uh, from, from a distance? And Abraham looks at me and just says, oh, bloody animals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was sick of his job. He was sick of the, you know, elephants and lions. He was, he was sick of it, you know, of it all. And all Abraham wanted to do, I mean, he was a, you know, was a rural boy, and all he wanted to do was just go to Joburg and get a job. And he actually subsequently quit and uh, I think went, worked construction uh, in, in, in Pretoria. And that for me was quite uh, telling, uh, you know, because here I was, you know, full of ideas about the dedication of, of, of the rangers to what they're doing right. or, you know, the uh, investment in this idea of nature conservation. Uh, and, and, and just from talking to Abram, you know, he really had no interest in any of the philosophical commitments, uh, you know, to nature conservation. He was just sick of these animals, and he couldn't wait to get out of there. You know, and that, for me, was, was, was quite an important lesson.
Now, you're an eclectic scholar uh, on, uh, in a whole number of different ways. You also have another new project uh, underway that has to do with the history of collaborators okay. uh, during apartheid. Maybe this is a good way to um, start bringing the conversation to a close. When you gave a talk at, at the South African Historical Society Conference in Durban, you told, me, uh, you told the audience uh, about September. Um, what's September story, and why is it significant on the eve of the ANC's centenary? Well, so September is interesting. Uh, so his uh, his full name was uh, Lefoshi uh, Sedibe, uh, a barely speaking uh, South African, uh, black South African from the Pilgrims Rest area, which is incidentally is a you know a former mining town just outside the Kruger Park. Uh, and Sedebe, uh, you know, grew up in the Lutheran Church, uh, as did most people in his uh, in his area, uh, in, in the Pilgrim's Trust area. Uh, his brother, uh, one of his brothers, he came from a fairly big family, and one of his brothers, a uh, man by the name of Gilbert Sedebe, uh, goes uh, to the University of the North, uh, or Teflop University, uh, in the 70s, and. Gilbert uh, is quite a dynamic fellow, and he gets elected onto the Student Representative Council at the uh, Teflop uh, University. And uh, Mozambique, uh, or rather the, the, the Portuguese monarchy, uh, collapses. Mozambique gains independence. And students at the University of Teflop uh, decide to organize uh, what they call uh, a Frelimo Rally, uh, the, the famous uh, you know, case of the Frelimo Rally. Uh, they organize this uh, as a success, but uh, the leaders were subsequently get arrested. Gilbert is among those uh, arrested. Uh, he's found guilty, uh, uh, I believe the charge was sedition, uh, if, if, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, he's sent to Robben Island for five years, and this so radicalizes uh, his younger brother, uh, <clears throat> you know, Lefoshi. And, and Lefoshi at this time, uh, you know, fin- Lefoshi finished his matric, I believe, 76, 77 or thereabouts. Uh, you know, he holds down odd jobs. He works as a teacher at one point. He works construction at another. He works on uh, one of the citrus farms, uh, uh, you know, not you know, around, you know, the, the eastern Transvaal. Uh, but when the brother is sent to Robben Island, he's so radicalized by this uh, that he decides going to exile. And he leaves the country. Uh, Goes to Swaziland, and then from Swaziland, uh, you know, is taken into Mozambique. Uh, it's, it's fairly bright, so he's marked out for training, and uh, you know, so he gets sent to uh, a camp in East Germany called Tetrov. Uh, he's given specialized training. He comes back as one of the most highly trained, uh, you know, MK soldiers at the time. This is like late 70s. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so, so September is radicalized by his uh, brother's arrest uh, and, and, and five-year sentence in Robben Island. He leaves the country, uh, you, know, he, he, you know, finds himself in a refugee camp in Switzerland. Uh, the PSC approaches him, you know, he's not interested. The NC approaches him, you know, they offer you know, him a scholarship. Uh, he's interested, uh, he's quite smart, he wants to go to university. Uh, but he then decides that now he's going to join the uh, the military wing of the ANC. Uh, he's then sent for training. Uh, you know, and his training includes a stint in uh, in East Germany. Uh, he comes back fairly highly trained. He's based in Mozambique and Switzerland. 
uh, he comes in at one point, uh, you know, in the Akonuk area. And, and what's interesting for me, uh, tangentially, is that a lot of this uh, happens alongside the Kruger Park. Uh, so one of his first big missions is in a town called Akonuk, which, which is uh, near the middle of the, of, of, of the park and not far from Palabura, uh, which incidentally was a base for the South African military special forces. Uh, and he then leaves the country uh, and rises through the ranks of MK. Uh, and by 1984, 83-84, uh, uh, he's risen high enough that he's actually chief of military intelligence uh, for the ANC in Swaziland. And this is how he comes to the attention of the South African Security Police. And what I've been able to establish from the from the archives is that uh, uh, so during one of his routine visits to the Swazi police, uh, one of the senior officials of uh, the South African security police, uh, you know, is told that September had just been arrested uh, by the Swazi police uh, on immigration charges. Uh, because this would happen from time to time. The Swazis would just round up ANC members, uh, either deport them to uh, to, to Mozambique. Uh, or just hold them in prison for a while and then, you know, get rid of them. Uh, or, I mean, sorry, release them. Uh, so September gets arrested uh, by the Swazi police on immigration charges, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and the South African police get wind of this, and they then tell the... the I mean, the Swazi police were heavily infiltrated by the South Africans. And so the South African police then ask the agents uh, and the Swazi police to transfer September to a small police station uh, not far from the border uh, with South Africa, uh, not far from the town of uh, Petritif. And the Swazis do this, and De Kock and his company come in, uh, kidnap September, uh, take him across the border into Petritif, torture him, and turn him uh, in, in, into an agent. De Kock being the leader of the Flak Plus death squad. Oh, well, absolutely, yes. Yeah. So this is, this is Eugene De Kock, a man who's serving uh, multiple uh, life uh, you know, time sentences uh, in, in prison. And so that's what happened. So he, uh, he's, he's, he's kidnapped, uh, September's kidnapped, brought into South Africa, he's turned, and he becomes the most, uh, or arguably, uh, you know, the most effective agent that in the South African Security Police, uh, you know, have, have you know, will have uh, in the in the, in the late 80s. Yeah. In fact, his arrest is so devastating that it leads to the arrest of, of many, uh, you know, many senior. Uh, so it, it, it disrupts the entire uh, ANC network in Swaziland. It leads directly to the arrest of uh, you know E.B. Ibrahim, uh, who's. Uh, uh, today, the, one of the deputy foreign ministers uh, in South Africa, uh, but at the time was one of the senior uh, ANC people in Swaziland. Uh, and what I've been able to find is archival material on September and, 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 and September's uh, many uh, acts of betrayal. Uh, so uh, what I have uh, in my collection are accounts of September identifying people uh, for the benefit of the South African Security Police uh, it, it's, it's fascinating, and, and this goes. I mean, why this is all fascinating to, to answer your question about, about you know why now and why this matters is, is because the September case uh, complicates, I think, the, 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 the heroic narrative that the ANC has been founded on. It, it complicates also the stories that the ANC is, 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 is telling and is, it will be telling more and more uh, as it turns uh, 100 uh, in, in, in January 2012. And this is fascinating because, uh, you know, through the September 
story. You, know, you get to tell or you get to hear of stories of collaboration and betrayal that undermine uh, quite substantially the, this heroic narrative. You know, this idea that uh, the people who fought for freedom, you know, were these uh, you know untainted uh, untainted heroes uh, who never wavered. Uh, and so it's remarkable for that reason, and 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 I'm hoping uh, that you know through more work I'll I'll be able to use the September story to tell a much more complex story uh, about what actually went on, uh, uh, you know, while the ANC was conducting the arms struggle. Great. Well, thank you very much, uh, Jacob, for uh, joining us for Africa Past and Present. Thanks, Peter. I, I appreciate the opportunity to chat. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>